welcome to another podcast from Basic Scotland. These are a series of brief snapshots about less talked about topics within pre-hospital care in Scotland and some deep dives into some more specialist areas with experts from a variety of disciplines. My name's Dave, I'm an army surgical trainee, a basics responder and a mountain rescue doctor based in Pitlochry. So Paul is back with us today to talk about endovascular resuscitation. Not a topic that is, is well known to most basics responders, but it's definitely something that's being more and more talked about in pre-hospital care. Hi, thanks very much for inviting me. So to start with, what are we talking about here? What, what do we mean by endovascular resuscitation? So the procedure we're probably talking about when we talk about endovascular resuscitation in the UK is REBOA. So an acronym, sorry about that, but Resuscitative Endovascular Balloon Occlusion of Aorta. And this is using a procedure whereby you get access into the arterial circulation uh, in the femoral artery and use it to advance a balloon catheter, balloon device, into the aorta with the intention of occluding it. So this could be used for patients who've got, say, a severe abdominal hemorrhage, maybe a liver laceration or penetrating wound, or maybe even pelvic injury with severe bleeding, patient who's maybe peri-arrest. Blowing the balloon up gets you immediate hemorrhage control and buys you a bit of time to stabilise and maybe package your patient, whereas otherwise their downward spiral would result in uh, hemodynamic collapse and cardiac arrest. Now, I'm guessing there are some hiccups because it sounds fantastic on paper and sounds like something that everyone should be carrying in their back pocket. Clearly, there are going to be some technicalities with it, otherwise we'd all be using it. Yes, yeah, so there are, there are two, two reasons really why it's not in widespread use. One is actually the, the numbers of these patients who are peri-arrest due to hemorrhage are actually fortunately in the UK pretty small. So in London, it's quite a common injury uh, pattern to get swiped by a truck or, uh, or a large vehicle turning left that then results in very severe pelvic disruption. So pelvis gets driven over, resulting in bleeding. And because of the compressed population, it's possible to get to the scene and deliver care because this is within the city prior to getting the patient back to a major trauma centre. So where you have a lot of patients is where you might see it or a lot of population. Outside of those compressed urban areas, you'll see it much less frequently. And the other place where we see this injury pattern quite a lot is in deployed military trauma. Uh, and patients there who have junctional hemorrhage, so if it's a bleeding point that you can't press on, can't put a dressing on, can't put a hemostatic uh, device on, or can't put a tourniquet on, that's very hard to treat. And that carries a very high risk of death uh, in the pre-hospital setting. And we know that the vast majority of our battlefield exsanguination deaths uh, bleeding out deaths happen in the early phases uh, before the patients even reach the medical treatment facility. So that's that's where it's probably going to have most bang for its buck is in compressed urban centres where these things are a happening a lot and b can be accessed a lot by medical teams and maybe in the military setting and that's where we've also had some utility very recently. So we gain access via the femoral artery, float this balloon up into the aorta, inflate it, and then your patient's golden and your and your circulation is back to normal. Yeah, not quite the case. So obviously the access is tricky, particularly because these patients are in the process of exsanguinating. So a normal femoral artery is not what you're going to find. You're going to find a vasoconstricted vessel that's maybe hard to get in. And we do, when we teach people how to do this procedure, we teach them to use ultrasound to identify the right vessel. The advancement of the balloon should be reasonably straightforward. So the most recent iterations of the devices that we use don't have complicated things like wires associated with them. So it's possible to put the balloon into the aorta and then deploy in one of two landing zones. A lower landing zone, essentially for pelvic or lower limb hemorrhage. So if your patient's got isolated pelvic injury, you don't need to put the device in so far. But if the patient is peri-arrest, or we think there's a major intra-abdominal bleed, 
then you'd blow the balloon up in a much more proximal aortic position, effectively using it as a, a, a non-invasive aortic cross clamp. Now, what happens then, of course, is that that does increase afterload on the heart. Upstream, you'll see a surge in blood pressure. And we know that's probably usually 30 to 50 millimetres of mercury surge in blood pressure from baseline upstream when you blow the balloon up. And of course, the patient isn't really rosy at that point either. All we've done is save them from imminent cardiac arrest. What we need to do is get access, give blood products and start planning our next meaningful intervention, which is most likely going to be damage control surgery. All of the time the balloon is inflated, you've got to bear in mind that there is very minimal flow going to any organs that are downstream of that. So the whole body starts taking a metabolic hit. And if that's liver and if that's kidneys, then that's going to cause us problems. So we really want to minimise the time that we spend with the balloon completely inflated. So inflate the balloon, get control, maybe even allow a bit of clot formation. And that's what people who do this a lot see, particularly in pelvic injuries, after a period of balloon inflation, when you deflate the balloon, the bleeding doesn't all immediately start again. Some natural hemostasis has been allowed to occur. But then partially deflate the balloon, allow some forward flow. And that's the point where we want to be packaging our patient and heading towards a pre-alerted hospital that has the capability to deliver blood products and immediate damage control surgery. And presumably the, the fact that you have a balloon in situ that's partially inflated means that you can, to a degree, control how much flow there is going past the balloon, but also if things go suddenly wrong, have the ability to go back to a, a full occlusion. Yeah, that's true. Nobody knows really how much partial flow or pressure or which of those two variables is the one that we should be looking for. We've done some military research work using ultrasound devices to see flow around the outside of the balloon. But nobody really knows what the right amount of forward flow is. And that probably differs between you know, the patients aren't the same, are they? Uh, so it's probably different between different patients uh, at different times. But having the balloon there, if the patient does decompensate, if you have partially deflated it, you can just go back up. Although, you know, that you're, you're obviously dealing with a very, very seriously ill patient at that point. Some of the military American systems in the US have developed something called EVAC, which is endovascular variable aortic control. And this is a sort of top tier device that's trying to do this for you. So it's trying to intelligently allow some flow forward so that the downstream organs get some perfusion at the cost of a little bit of bleeding uh, to try and minimise that downstream metabolic hit that the patient's taking. But we don't know what the right degree of flow is at this point in time. But we know that having the balloon up for a prolonged period of time is a very bad thing. Staying with hemorrhage for a, a minute or two, there's two other patient groups where I've heard mutterings about Riboa potentially being useful, one of those being in aortic aneurysms and the other being in postpartum bleeding. Have you seen any data, got any thoughts about the utility of, uh, of endovascular interventions with these folks? So working with my colleagues in Sweden, where I'm fortunate enough to be part of the faculty for their endovascular hybrid trauma management courses, they've had quite a lot of success. And the fact they're quite well written up in the world literature of using Reboa for management of postpartum hemorrhages and sort of peripartum hemorrhages. And they've written up a number of cases where they've actually pre-deployed the balloon in some cases of placental abnormalities in case there was then catastrophic hemorrhage and getting control transiently with the balloon whilst allowing a sort of simultaneous standard surgical approach to then treat the bleeding. So in PPH, yes, it's very well written up. And in the endovascular aortic world, well, actually, vascular surgeons have been doing this for years anyway. They just haven't been calling it Reboa. So we've seen a move over the last 15, 20 years from, you know, in some centres now, 90 plus percent of aortic aneurysm ruptures would be treated endovascularly. That may not be the same in all centres in the UK, but actually to acutely get control of hemorrhage, a balloon is very commonly used by a vascular surgeon. I'm sure you know it is a procedure that's been done maybe in a vascular surgery silo that's made just made its way outside into the trauma resuscitation world. 
So we're bringing things that are known and sort of at least understood, if not proven, forward to the resource room and potentially out onto the road in certain circumstances. Yeah, and this is a blend, really, of vascular surgery, emergency medicine, interventional radiology, and maybe interventional cardiology. So this is a this is a proper trans-specialty procedure. And, you know, again, interventional radiology techniques would be quite confident at uh, using balloons for, you know, iliac bleeding and pelvic bleeding. We're just taking that procedure a little bit further up and delivering it into the aorta. So these are procedures that people are all doing, but pushing them into the pre-hospital sphere is the challenge. And identifying the right patients to receive this is the challenge. If you look at the London Air Ambulance data set published in resuscitation over a several year period, there were not a large number of patients. So these are infrequent patients and your system needs to be very well set up to identify them and then be able to match that with an operator who can deliver this at the scene in a patient who's hemodynamically very unwell. I guess that kind of leads on to the evidence. And it seems from a casual observer's point of view that the evidence for Reboa as an intervention is divided at best. Yeah, I think that's definitely fair to say. And it depends where you look. The observational data probably tends to suggest that it's about the same effectiveness as resuscitated thoracotomy, but just avoids having a resuscitated thoracotomy, provided you can get access. The London Hems data shows that you do get a good hemodynamic response. The uh, United States Air Force SOS, so Special Operations Surgical Team data, where they used it in a number of patients who had ballistic military injuries, also showed that it gave you a good hemodynamic response. Randomized control trials, we don't have yet. So the UK Reboa trial is ongoing. There have been some observational case series that have used propensity matching. Some of those have suggested a worse outcome. And there certainly are situations where failed access will just delay care. And there is thrombus associated with having a device and downstream hemostasis. So we know that there is no such thing as a free lunch. And there are certainly complications associated with the procedure that uh, operators have to be aware of. So I imagine it's going to be an element of learning which patients are, are the appropriate targets to push this towards. Yeah, I think that's right. And this isn't going to be for everybody because it involves being able to ultrasound guided vascular access. It involves you know, inserting a procedure into the aorta. Yeah, this needs a, a system really to develop around it and just, you know, just using Reboa in isolation to all of the other package of advanced resuscitative care is not going to be useful. There's often comparisons made between the deployed military setting and rural district general hospitals in that they are resource limited, low volume, often high acuity centres. Any thoughts about whether there might be a role for Reboa in the future for a sort of rural DGH? I'm thinking, you know, Fort William, Oban, out on the islands where you don't have immediate access to a major trauma centre. I think it might allow you to buy some stability very early on in your resuscitation phase, whilst you then get some surgical assistance or interventional radiology assistance or hemostasis happens. I think without immediate access to surgery, it's going to be tricky. But as the systems evolve, then that might change with time. So as we understand better how to do partial aortic occlusion, whilst we develop systems that allow us to do something like the US endovascular variable aortic control, then those things might prolong the, the golden hour that's being offered by Reboa, maybe. So that's potentially where it might have a role in the future. Now, stepping away from hemorrhage for a minute or two, there's musterings about there being a role for endovascular resuscitation in medical sort of critical patients as well. Yeah, so there's some good data from animal models looking at this as far back as the sort of early 90s, where balloons are being deployed in the aorta in experimental animal cardiac arrest and being used sometimes as an adjunct for retrogradually perfusing the proximal aorta 
trying to find a solution that might help preserve the brain or improve resuscitation. And if you combine all of those studies, it's pretty clear that you get much better coronary and cerebral perfusion during CPR, so in, a, in an artificially induced cardiac arrest state, if you've got an aortic occlusion balloon in. And you actually, your resuscitatability from VF cardiac arrest is better. The amplitude of your VF is better. And when you look at the angiograms, you can sort of understand why. So we spend a lot of time pressing on the chest to push blood around the body. But all we're really interested in is getting coronary perfusion such that we can get and sustain ROSC and maintaining cerebral perfusion so that when ROSC establishes itself, there is a brain to perfuse. So when you look at the angiograms of a of balloon up in aorta, all the CPR effort pushes the blood in two places, coronary circulation and brain circulation. So that's exactly where we want to focus it. So November last year, our Norwegian HEMS colleagues published an amazing study where they performed Ruboa in medical cardiac arrest. So I feel quite uh, annoyed that they got there first, but they trained for and delivered Ruboa in medical cardiac arrest in some selected cases. And they were able to demonstrate very nicely. There's a copy of this in the notes that they were a able to deliver it. They were able to deliver it without interrupting conventional ALS. So something that distracts you from doing all the stuff you should be doing when you're doing resuscitation is not a good thing for the patient because if they're in VF, they still need to be shocked, but they're able to deliver at Reboa in the context of ongoing cardiac arrest. They're able to do it quite quickly, about 11 minutes, and it actually gave them an improvement in end tidal CO2 during the resuscitation. So there's a signal, isn't there, to improving the circulation during resuscitation. The numbers are small, so they're aiming to go on and do another study in the near future. But it's a, a signal of where we might have utility for this procedure. The flip side of this is, I suppose, if we ever did do this mainstream, we'd then be pretty slick at doing it in the very few trauma patients who require it. And going even further than that, having access to the aorta and having uh, advanced vascular access skills in our organisations might allow us to embrace other technologies in the future as they come online. So almost everybody who's involved in pre-hospital care and resuscitation has seen the amazing pictures of the SAMU de Paris pre-hospital eCPR service. And perhaps in the future, when the equipment becomes more portableized, that might be something that we could offer more routinely, either in emergency department or critical care settings for cardiac arrest. But without a system where for many years we've been routinely able to access the vascular tree and the aorta, nobody's going to be in a position to deliver any of those therapies. We've also done some work looking at SAP, so selective aortic arch perfusion, which is using a much bigger balloon, which has a central channel in it to deliver uh, either blood products in the context of hypovolemic cardiac arrest or other resuscitation fluids. And in the lab, in Cadaver Lab in Dundee, we've actually done a first trial of SAP PCI. So through the central lumen of the catheter, which is occluding the aorta, we've been able to deliver coronary catheters and engage the coronaries, which could allow us to do PCI at the same time as CPR and focusing our CPR attention on the central circulation. So these are all interesting things for the future. And even if you don't buy the data for Reboa as it stands now for hemorrhage, then I think it's still something you need to have your eye on for the future. That's really interesting. And it seems to tie into the logic of what we're trying to do, even at the sort of the basics level of perfusion and avoiding secondary brain injury in those cardiac arrest patients. Anything that helps get that blood pressure up and perfuse the brain has got to be a good thing. Absolutely, yeah. So I guess the question has got to be, how do you see this developing? How do you see this evolving into a system that we can actually roll out to patients that need it across Scotland? Yeah, I think the data is key. And there's already been one needs analysis performed showing that it's, you know, all the things that I've said are true. It's going to be an infrequently performed procedure. So we've got to look at flight times and drive times to centres with patients because there is, as we said before, there's very little point putting it in and then having no exit strategy. So 
it's got to come as part of a system. It's got to come based on need. And I think that's the work that needs to be done first. Following that training, well, actually, training is deliverable. We have very good ways that we've trained our military teams using some very good simulation techniques to rehearse all aspects of the procedure. So from access through to sheath insertion, balloon deployment, how to manage the hemodynamics, how to hand the patient over, how to manage a patient that someone else has put a balloon in. So all of those things are trainable. It's just we've got to really work out the demand and work out where it's going to have utility. And at a very long geographic reach from surgical support, I think it's a it's a tough ask. So the urban patient who's peri-arrest, who you get to, you can buy stability for a few extra minutes, maybe, to get them to the hospital. I think that's where it has utility. I think in protracted, prolonged pre-hospital environments, I think it's going to be very tricky unless you're able to get immediate stability, give some blood products, get a circulation, and then back off uh, with balloon occlusion. I think uh, I think that's that's the challenge. We just need to watch and see how the data emerges over the next few years. One of the things that really impressed me looking at the, the SAMU French experience was that kind of taking the pit stop mentality of, of cardiac arrest management to the next level in that you had ongoing CPR, you had a team gaining vascular access and placing a type of Reboa balloon, and then you have a team putting a patient onto essentially extracorporeal membrane oxygenation all at the roadside, and it looked like they were doing nothing more complex than putting in a, an IV cannula. Yeah, it's a very impressive service. So I was fortunate enough to go on the Paris ECMO rescue team course last year. It is a very impressive service. And they do that one response. It's an almost binary response to medical cardiac arrest where the patient is salvageable. They do that exceptionally well. And it's actually quite a small team. So the eCPR operator will be using a hybrid access technique. So they don't use ultrasound. They use open expiration with digital expiration so using the fingers to explore the groin and then insert the cannulae whilst the ECMO unit nurse will be rapidly priming the set a doctor who will have arrived in the medical ICU will be helping the ECMO doctor to get access but it's a pretty small team the pictures that are ubiquitous of this always show a massive team around them but the people actually getting the access are pretty task focused and just you know the game at that point is just get the patient on as soon as possible and actually a large proportion of those patients then get ROSC at scene. So once they're on the external circulation with decent coronary perfusion, they're able to get and sustain ROSC, which is very interesting. I guess it's that sort of generalizability of advanced skill into its smaller outcome measures and whether there are things that we can take from this even you know, today without any data in terms of how we structure our response and how we can bring the drills and the task allocation into a standard cardiac arrest management. Yeah, it's about rehearsal. It's about knowing what you're going to do before you get there. Okay, not prejudging the scene, but if the, if this is a medical cardiac arrest when we get there, what are we going to do? We're going to go out and do X, Y, and Z. I'm going to do this, and then I'm going to back off and team lead. And often your role, you know, there are enough people on scene sometimes that your role could be to back off. I think if you're a part of a basic response scheme where you're going to arrive first, then you really need to think out your equipment. You need to know that there is, you know, bag X will have all of the stuff I need for cardiac arrest to avoid multiple trips to the car, but it just means you you just need to have thought about it before it happens and planned it. And if you're not actually doing it, then talk through it or mentally rehearse it. Think, right, if I get called to a cardiac arrest now, what am I going to do? Where am I going to go? What kit am I going to take? And where am I going to try and take the patient? What if I don't get ROS? What am I going to do? What if I do get ROS? Well, that's when my trouble really starts. Where I'm 100 miles from the local hospital. Who am I going to call? What assets am I going to get there? Am I going to ask the Coast Guard to come and help you with the patient? The answer is probably yes if there's bad weather. So all of those things you need to just have thought about before it happens. 
it's interesting that mental rehearsal and the sort of feng shui of where you keep your kit and how your kit is stored is something that I've heard time and time again chatting to folk on these podcasts. And it's it's something I'm trying to bring into my own practice. And I think that the evidence for it seems to be very good. Yeah, it's interesting. So there are the scram bags that EMRS have developed for airway management. Every service will have its own variations on it. We tend probably, don't we, to carry too much stuff. And I think, you know, to my years of doing basics in England, I had large Thomas packs full of gear and probably the things I use on most occasions could have been carried in two small pouches. So it was advanced airway management gear and thoracostomy equipment were the things I needed really quickly. And yeah, you do need to think through your equipment and try and avoid having too much. I think sometimes less is more. Indeed. Fantastic. Well, thanks very much for running through a little bit about where we are on endovascular resuscitation, both from the hemorrhage point of view and from the medical point of view, but also what's coming down the tunnel at us and, and things to look out for. What I'd like you to do is to give us some top tips. Now, basics being what it is and, and Scotland being what it is, we're unlikely to see Sandpiper Trust issuing Reboa balloons to rural GPs, paramedics and nurses anytime soon. But what can we take from this as useful outcomes? Okay, so I, I'm going to reverse my top tips I've written down. So I think number three had been whole system approach. I think Whatever you're going to do, it needs to be part of a whole system approach. Isolated Reboa, so just buying a catheter won't fix anything. You need this to be part of a system, and the system needs to look at the data. And we need to deliver these patients as soon as possible to a centre that can help stabilise them. So whole system approach is needed, whatever bit of endovascular resuscitation you're thinking of adopting. Access, access, access is the second top tip. So start training now with ultrasound. You know, for a tricky cannula, if you can get somebody to lend you some ultrasound gear, I think knowing how to subtly manage the probe and get vascular access using ultrasound is absolutely key. So if it's something that you're rusty at or you've not experienced, then try and go on an ultrasound course that will show you that. And then practice these things. Learn, go to the cath lab, speak to cardiologists. If there's something you think you want to do, then practice it. And then the third point was, for programs that have got endovascular stuff, the balloon time, keep it up as little as possible. That's not a very useful tip for most responders, but if you're in a system that's deploying this, then everybody has to have a mind on how long the balloon has been up, because we know that the longer it is up, the worse the outcome. So it probably just means you've got a sicker patient, but be very wary of how long your balloon has been inflated. Paul, that is fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on to chat to us and sharing both the wisdom of where we're at and, and the future of where we're going. It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation. That's it for this week. If you have any comments or questions, visit the podcasters page and leave us a reply in the box at the bottom. Join us next week for another podcast from Basic Scotland.